Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Kelly Stewart. Welcome to episode 10 of the Think Orphan podcast, where we seek to help you navigate the orphan crisis with experts from around the world. Phil, what expert do we have on today? Well, I was able to sit down with Mick Peace, who is just a man with a lot of knowledge, a lot of expertise, a lot of experience in all of this work. It was actually the first interview I was able to do for this podcast, so it holds a special place in my heart. Um, But it's a whole lot more than just the first interview I was able to do. This is a guy who has been working with substitute families for abandoned children for the last 15 years or so after he founded it. And it's something where they are going around and they're training people on how to deal with these really difficult issues that we've been talking about on this podcast. So I really look forward to everyone out there being able to hear from him, be able to learn from him, and just really being able to take what he talks about and applying it every day in their lives. So I can't wait to get to it and uh, hear from him. As always, we would love to hear from you with any comments or thoughts that you have after you've listened to the interview that Phil has done. And if you would, just take a few minutes to rate our podcast on iTunes. That helps to get the word out there. And we would love for more people to connect with us and hear the message of orphan care. So let's get to that interview. Well, Mick, it's great to have you on the show all the way in from Leeds, England, thanks to the power of technology. So excited for this conversation. I've been able to get to know you over the last few weeks, but uh, our listeners, many of them probably uh, have never heard of you, let alone gotten to know you like I have. Uh, It's very exciting for me to hear from you on all that you've been learning over the last couple decades of your life. And in addition to the orphan care side of your life, uh, I know that we share several other passions like uh, British football being the main one of those. So, I, I, you know, if we slip into that during this conversation, I'm not going to apologize for that. Uh, it's, it's something that I think we need to educate the listener on many different things. So that may be one of them. The first question, though, before we get into kind of your background and, and who you are that you're going to be able to share with, with the listeners, uh, I, I have a question for you that I'm sure most of our American listeners are wondering. Um, and that is, why do you think it is that... Uh, a lot of the British words out there have S's instead of Z's um, and U's where, you know, we as Americans would think they don't belong. Also, you know, there, there's also these things uh, like mathematics. You say maths, which actually makes more sense to me. That, that's the easy one. But how about those other things? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, interesting one. My, uh, my thoughts are uh, why would Americans want to actually take the U out of a word that has been there for generations? Why would you want to say the same word but write it in a different way? And uh, I know there are various things out there on Facebook and uh, YouTube about the, the, the Queen of England uh, withdrawing kind of like American independence because of the way that they fail to manage themselves or, and write the words correctly and stuff like that. But in some inst- instances, it sounds right because one of the things about English is uh, you don't pronounce every letter that's in the word, and many languages do that. And so, in a sense, when you're talking about, for example, favor, favor, F A V O R, why is there a U there? I don't know why there's a U there. Um, lots of other words like that. I find it's a, a fascinating discussion, and we, I'm sure we could upset, upset no end of people by pursuing that one, but. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that was uh, I definitely put you on the spot with that one. So uh, I, I thought that 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 gives the uh, you the audience a very good idea of the uh-huh. the brilliance in this man. That uh, he not only gave an answer there that gave some facts, but also um, was very uh, political in the answer as well. And I, I, you know, it might have offended a few people, but probably not. So that's that's a good thing. So um, anyway, I appreciate that candor and uh, and. On your feet thinking, that's that's very impressive. So the first question I have for you that, that really is getting into the to the meat of our discussion today is, is how did a social worker from Leeds, England, get involved with caring for orphaned and vulnerable children all over the world? I don't know if you know this, but um, when I left school, I uh, went to work down the coal mines and I did that for about 10 years. Uh, the very place my mother never wanted me to work because my grandfather worked down the coal mine and had two legs amputated through accidents. Uh, I did 10 years working in the coal mines on the coal face, and then I went to Bible college. So that was an interesting maneuver, if you like. Bible college, former coal miner. At Bible college, I did three years in Birmingham, England, and then I got into social work. And that's my first encounter working with residential social work with teenagers, boys and girls, uh, aged from around about 15, 14 to 18 years of age. And boy, did I realize after a few weeks that I didn't know a great deal, even though at the time I was a parent of two children and I'd run youth clubs and been involved in lots of other activities. That was a learning curve for me that I didn't know as much as I thought I did about working with other people's children. From there, I got into social work uh, training through university, became qualified, went to work with the local government uh, in child area of child protection. And I did that for a number of years, including then adoption and foster care. And then I just thought, you know, when you get that moment, you just think, hey, I just want to do something different. So I finished up working in Brazil, Sao Paulo, for a year with a children's uh, mission, working with children. And and I started seeing the hundreds of children I was working with, aged from babies to teenagers, 18. And I started asking the people there, excuse me, many of the children I'm working with, they could be in families. They can't be in their biological family because clearly something has happened. Mm -hmm. But they could be in families because their behavior is actually quite good compared to the behavior of many children I'd seen in foster care and in children's homes in the UK. Hmm. And their response fascinated me. They said, oh, foster care, what do you mean by foster care? I said, well, family care, foster care. They said, you mean adoption? I said, I don't mean adoption, I mean foster care. And it was interesting that their only perception of family-based care was adoption and when they were thinking adoption they were really thinking of international adoption not even domestic adoption Hmm, these were kind of care workers that got me on the route to thinking basically why can't these children be in families that's where they need to be so really that started a whole uh catalogue of events really that began to take me into other countries, and that's how people say I go all over the world. I, I've, all, I've worked in 22 countries. I wouldn't say that's all over the world. It's a fair bit. But, uh, uh, yeah, it all started from being a coal miner and going to Bible college and going into social work. 
<laughs> Definitely a different uh, path than uh, most would probably uh-huh. say they had, and and I, I think that that's one of the things we're we're learning on this on this podcast is that the uh, path to orphan care doesn't always follow the traditional the traditional path that everyone assumes. Uh, people that are passionate about this work do, which, you know, it's not necessarily an adoption or some background that you've had that, that makes sense, so to speak. So, um, definitely you're, you're in that camp where it's, it's something that God just captured your heart with this and in a way that uh, you were probably absolutely not expecting in any way. I'd imagine. Can I just say it was never on my radar. (laughs) When I went to Brazil, I did not go to achieve anything other than to say, let's go and work with these kids and let's just see what happens. So what I'm doing now was far removed from what I even thought I would be doing then. And so was Brazil the first country you went to that really kind of solidified and crystallized this this passion and calling? And when was was that? That was 1997. Okay, so that just gives a little context of how it's a lot has happened in uh, in 20 years. And and with that... um, now you hadn't you hadn't uh, started working with or uh, started being a part of the substitute families for abandoned children, which now you are you run, correct? Uh-huh. And uh, so tell me tell the story of how you got involved with and and did you did you found the organization? I did. Um, really, coming back into the UK in 1998, I went back into my local government employment, working in adoption and fostering with the government. And I was waiting, really, for someone to say, come and do this or help us come and do that. And it didn't happen. So in 2000, I was able to go to Central Asia. uh, And I went over there with, um, uh, did a piece of work with Tear Fund uh, right over in Central Asia. So imagine me, 5,000 miles or (laughs) 6,000 miles one way to Brazil and now going 5,000, 6,000 miles the other way to Central Asia. Completely different culture. And and so I went over there just to sort of look about the possibility of family-based care. And uh, this was before really my charity was formed. And I went and I thought, I'm not even too sure I'm qualified to do this. Uh, But they said, well, you've been to Brazil. Let's see what happens over there. And we did some work. And and it was over there I, I began to realize that the same issues I was seeing in Brazil about children being in large scale orphanages in 1997, I was seeing exactly the same thing a couple of years later in Central Asia. Different culture, different language, different context completely, exactly the same issues for poverty reasons, not because they were necessarily being abused or being trafficked or uh, just because of poverty, essentially. And so I thought we've got to do something about that. I came back to England and I started the charity in 2002, UK registered charity. And it took me ages to think, well, what am I going to call my charity? Um, and I thought, well, I don't want adoption in there because it's nothing to do with adoption. I don't want orphan in there because I have particular views about that. But I want to create something different. So substitute families for abandoned children came about, SFAC. Substitute because foster care wasn't widely known in the world. Uh, abandoned children because most of the children who are in orphanages are not orphaned uh, in the sense of they haven't got parents they're they're there because they've been abandoned or neglected or abused or for many and orphaned as well Um, uh, and abandoned children so families children abandoned substitute it seems to say it all even though it is a bit of a mouthful the title and so that's when substitute families for abandoned children was born in 2002, effectively, even though I've been on the road my journey before that. Right. 
man, there's a lot in that answer that I want to I want to parse out and and kind of could jump onto. And the first one is you, you talk about you have some issues with the term orphan. Mm-hmm. And and what what is that? And what, what what's what's caused that? What are the issues? And you know where? How have you kind of addressed those in the language? You've you've uh-huh. kind of tipped touched yeah. on that a little bit with abandoned children. But what what describe yeah. that a little bit more? Well, when I started this journey, I, I like the layperson thought that because all these children were in orphanages, they were orphans, and they were referred to as orphans, many of them. It wasn't until I actually began to dig down and, and look into the subject that I begin to realize most of the children are not indeed orphaned, they are abandoned. Now, they may have been removed by a government and put into an orphanage or a children's home or an institution, or they may have been placed there voluntarily by the parent or for relatives for other purposes, such as education and healthcare. And and, and I was just learning about this as I came into this uh, kind of work. But what I did know is that um, that orphans, by the uh, the definition of orphan by the layperson, would usually say, if you were to conduct a, uh, some kind of a check in the UK right now amongst the average layperson, they would probably say an orphan is someone who's lost both their parents. But of course we have single orphan, we have double orphan. Most people in society don't even know that. Uh, it's something that's been derived through UNICEF and, and through other children's organisations for various reasons. Um, but I think when we use the t- word orphan, and I think it's a legitimate term to use because it's very biblical, um, the impression we're giving is that these children do not have families. When in actual fact, we know from research that probably anywhere between around about 80 to 90 or 95 percent, in some instances, depending on the country, children who are described or referred to as orphans and therefore are in orphanages actually have at least one living parent. Some have two. And virtually most of them, if not all of them, have got extended relatives. So I was thinking, well, I'm, I'm not too sure that the term orphan actually gives an accurate description of what we're dealing with, when I think most of the children in orphanages are there because of health reasons or education or for be- better, yeah, better education or for food or for clothing or for a better life, just for a, if inverted commas, a chance of a better life because their families are too poor. Um, so I, for myself, I prefer to use the word children who've been orphaned and abandoned because there are always children who have been truly fully orphaned. Mm. So some interesting concepts there and discussions, yeah. but um, that's, that's why I never refer to myself as an orphan movement. I know there's the orphan care and I can understand that and I can see where that's coming from. But um, my view is that most children in orphanage are not actually orphaned. No, I really appreciate that, too, because the importance of terms, the importance of the words we use is so critical, which is a big part of why we're doing this podcast, really, uh-huh. to get it out there and to have conversations like this amongst ourselves and and uh, and also to educate people out there. So many of the, the listeners probably didn't even know that little tidbit. Um, yeah. A lot of people who aren't involved in the orphan care movement day to day have no idea you know, even there I say it, the orphan oh. care movement, right? Just because sometimes we use shorthand yeah. that when we're talking to people within the movement itself, they may understand what's meant by that. But when you talk to people outside of it, 
they have no idea. I mean, you hit it on the head earlier in the conversation about when you talked about foster care, people just automatically thought adoption and international adoption, like you said, not even, you know, thinking about the broad scope of even within adoption itself. So it's interesting, just if I can just butt in there, Phil, if you don't mind. Absolutely. When When I was in Brazil, I was talking to a pastor in the church in 1997. And that's what he said to me as well. He said, oh, you mean international adoption? I said, no, I do not mean to international adoption. I thought, good, this is rife. People think orphans, no parents. Hmm. People think um, uh, orphanages or uh, family-based care means international adoption, whether it's in the churches or outside of the churches. And I just thought this has to be tackled. We have to, and this is going back into the late 90s. And I'm thankful to say it is being tackled and the movement towards family-based care is growing and really dealing with issues and actually growing it out into a a full debate and discussion and acting on it. Right. And and to to kind of piggyback on that, let's let's go into that other the other part of the name of your organization. So substitute families. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this before. You know, when you talk about family based care, when you talked about the substitute families, what are we what are we referring to? What are you referring to in that in that statement as far as what what are these families looking like? What is the makeup of these families in in a world that we live in right now? Family has become this kind of. nebulous term almost where we don't even know what we're talking about in the midst of a conversation amongst people that we think are like-minded um so what what do you mean by that when you're when you're talking about that well the family of course the 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 first thing that we're looking at is the uh, biological family and the immediate family and that for me is crucial if i can just jump to a scripture if you don't mind Mm -hmm. that psalm 139 is it verse 13, 14, I think, something like that, where, where the Bible says, you cre- created my innermost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. You know, a child, wherever you are born in this world, a child will only ever have one birth mother, and they will only ever have one birth father. And that is crucial to retain that sense of significance and uh, importance for that child. However, they may want to view it and take it, whether mother father was a good father or not a good father, whether they feel that they were abandoned or rejected by their family or whether they were deeply appreciative of that family, that child has a right to determine that for themselves. And I think things like uh, preserving that information available for that child uh, is something that uh, many uh, many years ago, a number of years ago, was kind of not even considered as important. Now it is, thankfully. Um, so there's a biological family. When a child cannot live with that biological family for whatever reason, um, then we have to start looking at other forms of family care. So substitute family. That substitute family could be a, a relative. It could be a mother, uh, sorry, a mother's, uh, a mother's mother, so the grandparent. It could be a grandfather. It could be an aunt or an uncle. It could be someone in the community. I mean, many of us have got people in our lives who uh, we call a relative. For example, I used to have an uncle. Listen to this for an English name, Luther. <laughs> L-U-T-H-E-R, <laughs> Uncle Luther. And I remember... I always referred referred to him as my Uncle Luther. Now, I had other uncles. And then I remember saying to my mum one day, so my Uncle Luther, how is he my uncle? And she says, well, he isn't really your uncle. He's like an uncle to you because he's been so involved in your life Hmm. ever since you were a little child. So he had become my uncle, even though he wasn't actually in my bloodline. 
uh, he was a friend to the family, so to speak. And I think many people can recognize they have those people in their lives. So a child may be in another substitute family who is um, a relative, uh, who is not a relative. Or it could be even go further than that. It could be someone who is not even biologically connected or even family connected. For example, in foster care, we call it stranger foster care. Uh, but nevertheless, they have important principles in the fact that they believe in the right of the child and the safety of the child and that they will give that child safe care, either in the shorter term or in the longer term. So when I'm talking about substitute families, this can also, by the way, include adoption, certainly in a domestic adoption, and it can include international adoption where that's appropriate. But so substitute family means something other than the original biological family to that child for various reasons. So what is the work that SFAC actually does? How, how does it go about finding these substitute families, assuming, like you said, <laughs> that there are really good legitimate reasons why the biological family may not be appropriate for that child? And in, in that, in that uh, answer, if you could also just share with us some of those reasons, because, you know, that's something that's very offensive to some people. Why would you who's going to make that call? Who's going to make that judgment that the mom or the dad is not appropriate um, these are all really tough issues. So how do you, in your work, go about uh, finding the substitute families? What is the process? I know another big word that we hear a lot in this work is deinstitutionalization. Can you get a little bit into that as well? Because I know that SFAC works a lot in that as well. So Okay, yes. A lot of stuff there, but if you can unpack <laughs> that a little bit. Um, yeah, just so big, big, big questions there, yeah. Um, well, of course, in the in the UK and in many developed countries, uh, um, th there are systems in place to protect the welfare of children when children's lives are at risk. Um, and those systems have been well refined and are still not without their problems, but they've been well refined over the years and get hopefully get better and get better and get better. Um, and there are some tough decisions to have to make, that's for sure, about whether children can live with their biological families or not. And that's where we use the court systems in our land to be able to make those decisions based on the information that we've gleaned and we have. Um, now, when we're working in other countries, we are, not make, we are never involved in making any of those decisions. What we do as a, as a, as a charity is go out to upskill is that a term that you're familiar with? To upskill, to equip, okay. to uh, enable people who work with children to understand the needs of children and to make appropriate decisions on behalf of that child. Because if we don't consider those aspects at the early stages of our decision-making process, what happens is later on, We've burnt a lot of bridges, and that is have has long-term implications for that child. Mm. So, um, for, for just slipping into the deinstitutionalization bit, many children, as we know, have already discussed, go into orphanages because of other reasons than they are actually orphans. We know that, and that's been well documented over many, many years now. Um, most children who go into orphanages, there are. I would guess, I can't categorically state this because I, I, I have nowhere to go for that research, but I would guess that in most instances, children enter orphanages without a great degree of um, assessment and gatekeeping, checking out what are the reasons that child needs to come into the children's home, 
what is the family or the person wanting out for that child to go into the children's home or to the orphanage? Uh, and how long is the child going to stay there before they go home? Is this respite? Is it temporary? Is it long term? And very often what's ha- happened over the years is that orphanages have become kind of like a uh, an attention or a, a, an attraction is the right word for poor families to place their child in the event of, uh, if I was on camera, I could show you, but if, if imagine me saying inverted commas, a better life. Mm-hmm. My child will have a better life. They will have better education. They will have better opportunities. They will have better health. We can't offer that. Right. Um, and and so therefore we will give our child away to their orphanage and and who knows whether the child will ever come back now those kind of decisions are often made without any long-term planning or thinking about the effects that's going to have for that child right and other people's agendas get in there we need to build an orphanage we have to we need to have children in our orphanage to to show our donors that we're, we 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 need their support to be able to grow our orphanages and to be able to pay our staff and to lots of other agendas are in there but what gets lost is the need of the child and at heart everything we're, we're doing when we're talking about orphan care substitute family care it is about the child the child is crucial and central to that so Hey, I don't know if I'm answering any of your questions here, Phil, or I'm going off piste a little bit. What do you uh, do? You want to pull me in anywhere, or just yeah? No, no, that was uh, that definitely hit on hit on a lot of it, and and I think that one one question, little follow up to give a little context for the for the listener, in particular those people who aren't involved in this every day. Uh, can you give a little background into you know why is it such a bad thing, um, or why is it such an issue when people do put their child into an orphanage? Mm-hmm. Um, just for those poverty reasons, because in, oh. in a lot of cases, people would say, yeah, it's, it's a it's a better life. It's got a great education. It's got it's got food and clothing, whereas in their home, they may have nothing. And so why not um, encourage this this uh, people just putting their kids into these places, almost like a boarding school? Yep. Uh, now, I, I have professional answers and I have personal answers. So can I share a couple of my personal answers? Would that be OK? I'd love to hear both. Yeah. <laughs> The first one is my sister uh, was four years older than me, so I'm 65 this year, and uh, my sister is four years older than me. When I was a very young child, uh, our post-war Britain, my sister uh, and I came from a very, very poor family. We had very few uh, resources. My father was a bricklayer, and um, my mother didn't work. She stayed at home with us. And uh, but my sister had serious chronic asthma. The medical profession said the only way your sister, your uh, to my parents, the only way your daughter is going to survive is if she has medication. This was before the English welfare state. Uh, my uh, my parents said, well, but we can't afford it. You know, my father, uh, my father said, I'm a builder. I have very little money. I can't afford the medication. Uh, and so, the, 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 do you know what the second option that was given to my parents was? She needs to go to an orphanage. Hmm. So they placed her in an orphanage at the other side of England, from the east of England to the west of England, in a Catholic orphanage. Wow. And they placed her there, and my parents could rarely go and visit her because it was so far away without transport, didn't have the finance. I never saw her for three to four years. Hmm. And she went. She grew up there, and when after three or four years, my mother said, "Enough! I can't live like this anymore. I'll have my daughter home, and if she dies, she dies. But at least she's with her family." She came home. 
she, uh, my st- sister's still alive. She married, had, had, had children. And, um, but in, in, in adult life, she revealed for the first time that during her time in that orphanage, just Catholic orphanage, she was physically, sexually, and emotionally abused by staff and by children. Now, that's a, she was placed in an orphanage for safe care because of poverty. My parents didn't have the money. She went there. My parents thought we've done the right thing for her. But while she was there, things happened that were outside of their control. And my sister paid a heavy, heavy price for that. Mm. Thankfully, she survived. She's done well. She's recovered uh, for all sorts of reasons. And she's, she's fine. The other st- personal involvement, if I can just tell this brief st- well, story. And it's on, it's on YouTube and it's on my um, website. And it's called Mixed Story. In, in uh, around about 2000, I was in Central Asia, to uh, Tajikistan, as you know, I've already talked about. And I interviewed some children in a large Russian state orphanage. And I asked them these questions. Um, What's life like here? Do you know why you're here? How often do you see your family? Are you happy here? And of course, they were saying, yes, we're happy. We have lots of friends. We have lots of activities. Uh, we, um, we're we happy. So I thought I'm going to dig deep. <laughs> so I asked this wonderful question, the magic question. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. And the question is this. If you had a magic wand or one wish, what would that be? And the children, each one of the children I interviewed with a Russian translator said to me, I want my mum and my dad. I said, so you're wanting your family? He said, yes. Mm. The tragedy is nobody had ever asked them that. Wow. Everybody assumed that you have got a better life. And it's like they would have put their education, their activities, their, the things that they did enjoy to one side and say, that's all good. But what I really want is to live with my family. And I said, why do you want to live with your family? And they said, because we want to be like everybody else mm. who lives with their family. And so then I asked them this next question. If we couldn't get you to your family because maybe they weren't safe or maybe we didn't know who they were or maybe they just weren't, you know, they had died and these children were truly orphans, would a substitute family be happy for you? Would that be okay? And they said, yeah, that's fine. We just want to be like everybody else. We want to have a mum and a dad. Stigma. Hmm. discrimination right. it's a powerful powerful thing for children so one of the things is we have to ask children what is important for you and sometimes we can't always give children what they would like of course right, right. but at least we can ask them Absolutely. and what I find is that through our training of workers in, in substitute families for abandoned children with organisations across the world what I find is we're working with carers who are not aware of these issues hmm. because they're not social workers they're not psychologists. They right. haven't been trained. They haven't been to university. They're working from the heart. They may have been to Bible seminary, but they're working from the heart, just like I did when I came from Bible college. Right. They're not working with solid information of, of these issues. That doesn't mean to say they don't have a lot to give. They do. But they need more than just a big heart and some biblical background. They have to know much more about children's issues, and that's where professional training and technical expertise comes in. Right. Sadly lacking for many, many years. Right. Right. Mm. So with that, what, let's say someone were to call you today and say, hey, I'm looking to start a new orphanage and name the country. What would your advice be to them? That's happened. <laughs> I'm sure it has. It's happened to me several times. 
not today, but it happened a few years back. And somebody said to me, "Look, we're thinking of starting your uh, orphanage, and it was in Africa, somewhere in Africa." And um, and I and I said, "Can you can I give you some advice?" And they said, "Fire away! You know, you've been around, you've seen a bit." And I said, um, "There will always be a need for children's homes." Um, so, you know, I'm not of the view that deinstitutionalization is should all the orphanages down. I'm not of that view. I'm of the view we will always need children's homes. But let's make sure that the children who are in those children's homes are the ones that really need to be there mm. and that there aren't other options of family for them and that those children who are there, let's make sure that we train their staff, we equip their staff, we remunerate their staff, we encourage and support their staff so they are able to give the better quality of care. Isn't it a fascinating thing, this, Phil? The children who are the most vulnerable in this world are the children who are outside of their immediate family. I mean, there are children in immediate family who are very vulnerable as well, of course. Right. But for all the children that we're referring to, the 8 million plus who are living in out-of-home care, in institutional care somewhere, they are described as the most vulnerable children. And yet, who do we give them to look after them, people who work from the heart, people who are lowly paid, lowly motivated, lowly trained, lowly equipped. Is there any wonder these kids just do not get what they deserve? They need more. They don't need less. Right. And I think the technical services for the people who are supporting these children's homes has to begin to invest in, in developing these kind of services. And that's what you guys do with the yeah. SFAC, right? You, you come Absolutely. in and you help to equip. I mean, yep. with people who are trained in this, yourself yeah. and others in your organization who are able to give this training and be able to build people up to do that, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and uh, so we don't forget, can you just give your website and um, the ways to get in touch with you? Uh, my website is www.sfac.org.uk. Okay. And email address would be info at sfac.org.uk. And our website is going under under a remarketing right now. I mean, it's still up there, mm -hmm. but it will be a different website in the months to come than it is at the moment. Well, great. Well, uh, we'll have that in the show notes as well as a, as well as any other resources that we have, including the uh, the YouTube video you referenced earlier and some other things that we're going to uh -huh. have on there. But back to a couple couple questions to to kind of finish up here. And and first of all, in your conversation, you you intimated that there will there's always going to be a need for children's homes, um, and that that kind of begs the question of are there any orphaned abandoned children who may not uh who may not the family mm -hmm. may not be the best thing for them right now are, are there those children in the world um today yep of course there are and they are here right in the uk and they are there right in the states as well they are all over the world and sadly for these children for many children family has passed them by it's like their, their life has changed and they've moved on and they're either now too old to either want to be reincorporated back into a family. Maybe they've lost trust in family because they've had family. Family has abused them and rejected them and not taken interest in them. So they kind of, their survival skills have kicked in and they've now kind of almost, I don't need family, thank you very much. Mm. I can manage on my own. I don't need family. Uh, there are children who we would love to place in families uh, but we can't find them. Mm. We used to have a term many years ago. I still hear it in, in the UK. And the term was these children are unadoptable. 
And I used to say, you can't use that phrase. What is that child going to make of that phrase when they read their papers or their files in years to come? Oh, I am so bad that Hmm. I was unadoptable. Let's change that round and let's say every child is adoptable. Every child is able to live in foster care, but sometimes and often we don't have the right family for them at that time. Like, uh, for example, children with disabilities, children who are part of sibling groups, we can only work with what we've got. Sometimes right. children whose behaviour is off the wall, you know, they've been on the streets. Not easy to place children like that into families, although there is an organisation in Uganda doing that and have been fostering street boys for years quite successfully as well. Uh, and the name of that organisation, should you need it, is Retrack, R-E-T-R-A-K dot org. And I used to be on their board a few years ago. Okay. Some great... So that is why we will always need children's homes. But let's make sure that the children's homes that we give them, are in, we've invested in the services that we deliver them. And that re- response brings me to another question that something you said to me earlier in one of our earlier conversations, just I want you to explain and expand on it for our listeners. You said that in order to have any hope of alleviating the orphan crisis, we need to change our generational mindsets of the attitudes of men that children are there to be exploited. Can you expand on that a bit? Yeah, I can. I think um, the movement for family-based care is indeed uh, beginning to uh, grow and develop and move out there into various countries of the world where you would not have imagined it. So, for example, Myanmar, just formerly a military state and now beginning to embrace family-based care and at the very, very early uh, stages of that development. And that's happening in various countries. So, but what has to change, in my view, as changing generational mindsets, the generational mindset in cultures that says children are, to, are there as objects, uh, are there to be used as we tell them to do, um, and to, are there to be sold or are there to be mistreated, that generational mindset has to be challenged and changed, and that's a, uh, that is a, a tall order. The generational mindset with the donor that says, well, look, the donor, let's actually give, let's throw money at these orphanages and let's pre-walls and activities and, uh, and, and smiley faces and lots of nice clothes and televisions and things like that, and, and look at these happy children and think you're actually doing that child a service. That has to change. We have to dig much deeper down than just be satisfied by seeing a smile of face and some nice things on walls. As important as they are, we have to look to the real deeper needs of children. The generational mindset of the church involvement about rescuing children, and that's what we're doing. We're rescuing children from their poverty and giving them a life of opportunity. When for that child, their biological family is the only one they'll ever have. And it's for them to determine whether they see a future there or elsewhere. So rescuing children, uh, the mindset of thinking I'm rescuing children for for Jesus, to be servants of the king, to to be missionaries and disciples and the future kind of... uh, That is... I didn't make those kind of statements for my own children, and most people don't. We let our children aspire to the things they want to aspire to rather than being pushed in that direction. And for me, a lot of that, those mindsets have to be challenged and changed within the church, within the cultures, and within the donor. 
Well, that's great. Um, yeah, I feel like I often use the term paradigm shift, but I really like yes. your generational mindsets. I think that that is, is less of a big <laughs> term um, and uh, less of a lawyer term, I guess, as, as uh, I get caught up in well, sometimes. And, so, and these terms have been around for generations. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and you can understand why people think the way they do. I, I fully appreciate that. And if I was to step yeah. back a few years, I myself thought like that at yeah. one time. So I understand there's a process of change. But that, for me, is where we've really got to work in, in, in the West, in, certainly in the developing world, but also in the, uh, in, the, in the developed world as well. Right. Well, I want to finish up here with what I want to kind of call the speed round here. Um, <laughs> so first of all, just, just real quickly, what are two or three of the biggest issues that you feel that the orphan care movement is facing today um, that you'd like to hear discussed on, on this podcast? Um, I, I think you've already mentioned one with deinstitutionalization. I think uh, we have to be clear what that means and and, uh, and and understand where it's going and what it's about. And it's not about just closing orphanages down and getting children back into families. It is about stopping the flow of children or, or, or limiting the flow of children coming into orphanages and actually making sure that we're going further upstream to actually support the communities from where these children come from. And that, for me, is where the, one of the big issues is that the money that has gone in, the colossal amount of money that over the decades have gone into building orphanages and extending them uh, and trips to go and see you know, uh, children in orphanages to, get, to catch a vision, uh, if we used a proportion of that money in actually going upstream and developing community services so that families can keep their children and we can be keep, and they can be encouraged with micro loans with kind of health services educational services in those communities, then I think that's a huge huge issue mm-hmm. and could be done is being done slowly but surely. I think the second thing is for me is the investment in technical services. Mm. How do you learn to be a lawyer? Someone teaches you to be a lawyer. Someone is getting paid when they're teaching you, Phil, to be a lawyer. Right. When you were doing through your training. How do you learn how to be a car mechanic? Someone is being paid to teach you how to be a car mechanic. How do you, you know, being a nurse, it's the same principle that is applied throughout the world. So we have to get our heads around donor money going towards supporting organizations like ours that actually say, we have the knowledge and the skills like many others do. We will take that out into communities to the, particularly to the organisations who don't get access to UNICEFs and Save the Children's and you know uh, World Visions and you know CAFOs and all that kind of stuff, they can't never access that. But organisation at grassroots level, because that is like a bottom up approach, and we know we've got UNICEF with a top down approach, and hopefully we can meet somewhere in the middle. Right. I think, and the church, I do believe, has got a fabulous opportunity uh, to play at that role if we can actually begin to appreciate and understand what we're talking about and begin to let our money go into paying people to be able to deliver this service and encourage people on the ground to go and deliver the service. Um, That's where I see the movement of family-based care going. All right. And then the last two questions. Which are? What have you read or listened to in the past year that has impacted your thinking on orphan care? The most. Well, can I change that question from the past year and just say sure. in the past? Sure, <laughs> ever. Take the word sure. year out of it. Sure, sure. In the past, 
when I started this venture in 1997, uh, Roofs and Roots was a book by David Tolfrey, commissioned by Save the Children in 97, 95, sorry. Uh, great, opened my eyes and made me realize that when I was thinking in a very naive way, simplistic way about family-based care, that he actually had done some research to show it can work in developing countries. In fact, it needs to. That was his line. Another book is A Voice for the Voiceless by Caroline Cox, used to be the deputy speaker for the House of Lords in the UK, British Parliament. In fact, I think she's still in the House of Lords now uh, in 1999. That was a great book. Okay. Another book is Too Small to Ignore by Your Own West Stafford. Mm -hmm. I, I found those books incredibly helpful for me to say, you know, we're on a, we're on a similar line. Children belong in families. In fact, right. they belong in safe families. Right. Um, and we have, how can we equip those families to actually look after those children? The other things are articles which I've read over the years and uh, a well-known misguided kindness by Save the Children. Um, Right. Families Not Orphanages by Better Care Network, right. uh, the guidelines for the alternative care for children. So there's lots of things out there. What right. there isn't are lots of good social work books, mm -hmm. technical skills kind of books. And I think that's probably what's going to be coming next. Right. And we'll get, again, we'll get these in the show notes. So any other resources okay. that you have, you can get to me and I'll put them in those show notes so that people Certainly are able will. to go there yeah. and get these great books, some of which I've heard of, others that I haven't. So I'm I'm excited to to crack them open and, and learn some more, as I'm sure many of the listeners are as well. All right, the last question. What one person has impacted your thinking on how to best love and care for orphaned and vulnerable children or orphaned and abandoned children uh, in our world today? Um, can I say it? Uh, Jesus. Sure. Uh, the light of the world. Yeah. Uh, let the little children come unto me. Jesus had um, never, ever turned the children away. Interesting, it was the disciples who were turn, turning the children away, as if to say, Jesus is far too busy for you, love. I'm sorry. You mm. know, he's far too busy. He's healing people, and there's lots of things happening down there, and people coming with all sorts of needs, and the children. And Jesus, no, let the little children come unto me. Uh, and I think that's something that uh, you think, mm, I can listen to all. There's some great men and women who have done some great stuff, um, like... Um, uh, Muller Homes, George Muller in the UK, mm -hmm. you know, open up, you know, uh, and they have children's homes. They didn't know any different, and for the time it was right. Right. So there's been some great people out there who's done some wonderful things. But if I was going to have to name one person, I'd say, you know, Jesus always pitied the children. Great. Well, thank you so much, Mick. This has been uh, as good as I thought it would be. So. Uh, <laughs> I'm uh, excited, always excited to learn, and you definitely taught me a lot today. So thanks a lot. Excellent. Well, thank you. Can I just say thank you for the opportunity, Phil? Absolutely. Uh, and uh, thank you for allowing me the opportunity to just share some of my thoughts and my passion and my experience. Uh, and if anybody wants to get hold of us, they can do that through you, through your podcast or whatever, really, or the links that we, we can provide. But um, thank you so much for this opportunity. being great. Uh, good to talk with you. You too. All right. Well, have a great one. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Well, as usual, I had a really good time with that interview, and um, there's just something about a British accent that makes people seem smarter. I don't know if it's just me. Um, I know my Siri, I've actually 
use the uh, British male accent, you know, and it's just something that always soothes me. So I, I hope it had that same impact for everyone out there. If not, well, it's just me then. So Kelly, I, I hope that uh, you were able to learn from Mick as I did. And, and I know that we've talked a little bit off air about some of the stories that it's kind of jogged in your mind and some of the real um, application you've been able to take from it. So I just hope you could share a little bit with the listeners about um, what Mick taught you in that uh, interview and what he kind of brought out um, through what he shared. There was a couple things that stood out to me. I know just the clarity of terms that he emphasized as far as abandoned children to go as far as to even use that in his organization's name, I think really speaks to the heart of the issue of most of these children are not orphaned. Most of these children are abandoned. And just also stepping back and looking at that generational mindset or the paradigm shift that you and I have talked about that needs to occur in orphan care, but just looking um, at just how generation after generation have viewed the care of children when there is no resource available. And so I know when we were adopting, our agency actually educated us on the fact that most women in Ethiopia expect to lose a child either to death or uh, to need to put them into an an orphanage. And so uh, just that thought of that's the only options. There is no foster care system. There is no uh, backup plan. That is literally the only option that they have if they feel like they can't care for that child at home. Yeah, it's just, it's something that more we do this, the more even in the last, what this is episode 10, and just hearing from different people doing this different work around the world, Um, it really emphasizes the fact that there isn't one pat answer. There isn't one thing that can just take care of all of this work. And I know you've talked about a lot of that in your own adoption and just the, the, that one experience has so many of these issues implicated. And so that's something that even yesterday I was just looking on Facebook and, and Chris Marlowe, who was, uh, we were able to interview and it's episode five. If you uh, haven't listened to that one, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to Chris but he just posted something yesterday that, that really brings home just the difficulties of these issues and how there isn't one simple answer to it. And I'm just gonna read it for you um, so you guys can hear kind of just how these issues are so difficult. And this is a real life example of something what Chris was talking about. And I just love his heart and how he just is so transparent and vulnerable in sharing this with us. And he, he basically just said, I just received a hard reminder of how difficult it is to fight extreme poverty. A few days ago, a mom showed up with her sick baby. She asked one of our leaders to take the child because she could no longer provide for the baby's basic needs. For various reasons, our leader could not take the baby. There was not enough room and her circumstance at the moment did not fit our criteria. Our leader gave the lady some key supplies, including food and clothing, and the mom left. Later that night, the mother took her baby's life. We're not sure why, but it's really sad. The work we do is complex, varied, and you never have a plan that is 100% right. I'm terribly sad as I process this story, but I'm also filled with hope, knowing that our work matters. And this story was just so true. It so emphasizes um, just how this work is so hard. But um, if we work one step at a time and if we try to do what we really feel is best in the given situations, we just have to trust that God loves these children more than we do and will guide us and direct us on how to do this work um, well. 
but to always understand there's no magic bullet. It won't always turn out exactly how we want it to. And uh, I just pray that we can um, really follow what we feel is right in that moment, um, knowing and understanding the principles that we're talking about on this show. Absolutely. And we appreciate your download and just taking the time to listen to the lengthy and also the hard issues that we face around the world with orphans. Thanks for joining us and join us next week when we sit down with Rick Morton. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan. Think Orphan.